Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cully. And this is episode 187 of the podcast. We now know that because one of the team has had not a huge amount to do during lockdown and has been through and catalogued every single episode. Hopefully that now means they're more searchable and usable for you to go back into the library. And that will include our last episode where I was replaced or perhaps substituted for by Peter Brindley. An excellent podcast. If you haven't had a chance to listen, please go back and do take a listen to that. Simon, before we dive into March's content, let's just very briefly think about our latest blog post, which we will review as part of April, but big news in emergency medicine about vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic thrombosis. Yeah, so this is the absolute hot topic at the moment because there's an announcement that um, it's possible after the AstraZeneca vaccine that you may get a a procoagulopathic syndrome called VITT, and that's led to uh, thromboses in unusual areas, one of which is in the head and can cause a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. The problem is, is that basically the, the, the advice went out to everybody that if you've had a headache in any time period between four and 28 days past the vaccine, you need to get yourself checked out, which has seemingly unleashed a little bit of a tsunami on primary care, walk-in centres and emergency departments. Certainly in my practice, we've seen a flood of people coming through the door. And we've got to remember that the, the instance of this condition appears to be very, very small. And then it becomes really tricky, doesn't it, Ian? Because you've got a very rare disease, but lots of people coming through with it. How do you spot it? And so Dan Horn has put together a great blog on how we can do this in perhaps a more sensible way. And to give you a little bit of a background on VITT, which is very similar to HITT, which is heparin-induced thrombocytopenic thrombosis. We always say our blog posts on St. Emeline's are must-reads, but I think this one really is a must-read. So you will be seeing lots of this over the coming months. It seems COVID is the disease that keeps on giving, not just in its own disease process, but now in its vaccinations. But Simon, let's move on and talk about March's content. And of course, there was some COVID there too. So let's think about those ones first. This was, again, we've covered some treatments that, well, maybe do, don't, perhaps could work. This is all down to recovery again. So we can think about colchicine and convalescent plasma as recovery has looked at both of these. Do they work, Simon? The headline figure is is no, really. So colchicine um, had some potential benefit. It's an antiviral, um, certainly in vitro. Got some anti-inflammatory characteristics as well because we use it in things like gout and pericarditis. But unfortunately, like most of the, the antivirals, it doesn't really seem to have had much of an effect. In quite a large number of patients, over a thousand patients that were trialed with colchicine against usual care, many of whom had also had steroids, 94% of them had steroids. There was no difference. It was 20% mortality versus 19% mortality at 28 days. Pretty good evidence there that it's not going to be effective in hospitalized patients. And we've always got to be careful when we talk about the recovery trial that it's patients in hospital. And that's one of my theories why the antivirals have not been shown to have any benefit in recovery. The the viremic phase has already passed. And similarly with the convalescent plasma um, in recovery, no real difference there. 24% versus 24% mortality at 28 days. There were over 1,300 patients in the intervention arm of the trial there compared to 5,795 against usual care. However, and really interestingly though, if you were seronegative, because we we took samples in the, the recovery trial, if you're going into convalescent plasma we measured whether or not the patients had antibodies and if you were seronegative at randomization you did really badly the convalescent plasma didn't make any difference you, you did badly with both of them but compared to the patients who were seropositive the difference was huge and that's really important because in convalescent plasma, you're just giving it's fairly untargeted antibodies. You're taking convalescent plasma off people, but it's not a specific antibody. It's whatever that group of people, that pooled product has produced. There is still the Regeneron 
monoclonal antibodies in the trial, which are specifically targeted towards SARS-CoV-2. So there is a possibility, don't, don't abandon this sort of idea completely, there is a possibility that that arm of the trial may show a benefit because it might be a benefit to that seronegative group. So, so far, recovery has recruited over 38,000 patients and counting. It's come to some really important conclusions for us. So we know now that dexamethasone does improve survival with patients who have an oxygen requirement. And toxalutamab, for those with more severe disease we talked about last month, has that huge effect on the immune system. Yet to really know what that may affect further down the line. But the things that we know from recovery that don't work are hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, colchicine, and lapinavir, ritonavir, and now convalescent plasma, they've been chalked off. We can say we don't really need to use those, but there's more in the pipeline and keep watching this space. Yeah, in fact, aspirin results are going to be out at the end of this month because they've closed to recruitment for that. So we're hoping to hear about aspirin in literally in the next couple of weeks, which will be really exciting. So then we can move on to talking away from coronavirus and COVID-19 to a couple of Journal Club papers. And it's always great to be able to review papers that are done by emergency physicians, especially in the UK. And the first one was about cricothyroidotomy experience and it's titled Real World Cricothyroidotomy Experience. This is one of those, I don't know if you've ever done this procedure, Simon, it's incredibly rare, but to actually get the opportunity to see a group of these and what's happened afterwards is really useful. What did you think of this paper that was published recently by the team from London's Air Ambulance? I thought it was really interesting, actually. They've got a lot of experience. And it's important to note that this is a pre-hospital group who've published this. For the patients who genuinely require a cryocathyroidotomy, a lot of them will be revealed in the pre-hospital environment because you've got a, an impending horrendous airway. So it is good. They're a very well set up team, if you're aware of them. They're fantastically well trained, lots and lots of experience and really good data collection over a long period of time. In fact, they've looked at 37,000 patients, of which 6,570 had um, pre-hospital anaesthesia. So it's a remarkable cohort. There's a couple of interesting things that come out of it. The first big thing that I thought was really interesting was the incidence of doing cricothyroidotomy has decreased enormously over the years. There are many reasons why that may be, but I think in the paper, I think you and I would probably agree, that the better training, better drilling, better devices, and in particular, the use of superglottic airways, which came in during this period, have reduced the requirement for you to advance to a surgical airway. And the other interesting thing here was that the instance of cricothyroidotomy in those 37,000 patients was 72. So this is not a common procedure, even in a completely trauma-focused London air ambulance system. In your lifetime, yeah, you may see a couple, you're probably not going to do many. So there's all that whole thing about, you know, being prepared to do it and, and getting sorted. Um, many of the cases, I think it was about a third of them, what they call primary cricothyroidotomies. So these were patients who had, didn't have an attempt at uh, normal forms of intubation. And that was either due to entrapment or due to awful maxillary facial or head injuries, but commonly access was actually an issue. And again, that's mostly a pre-hospital thing. And then there were a, a fair number of ones for failed intubations so to speak, which is the one that we always think about and all the way we train about. But as I said, that incidence has decreased quite a lot over the years. I don't think there's going to be many people out there who have who've got a lot of experience with this, unless they're absolutely terrible intubation. This is one of those procedures which I often drill in my head. There's a few of them. Uh, resistive thoracotomy is another. Perimortem caesarean section is another where the chance of me seeing it is really low. In this group, the rate of cricothyroidotomy is about one in 200 intubations. Bearing in mind the number of pre-hospital intubations I do myself each year is nowhere near that. The chance of me seeing one of these in 10 to 15 years 
is very small, but there is still a chance. And recently I was at a case where this procedure was performed. So I need to be ready to do it. But it's one of those things that, again, you just have to practice and drill for. But it's good to see that all the stuff that's going into pre-hospital care is meaning that this is a less necessary procedure because it really is your point of last resort, I think, in the pre-hospital environment. Another trauma topic, Tom Shanahan, who's up in Manchester doing research with you, Simon, he looked at a prediction model to think about major trauma triage. This is the idea that we're bypassing local hospitals and taking patients with major trauma, retrospectively looked at with an injury severity score and trying to get those patients with a high injury severity score, 15 or above, usually we define as major trauma at major trauma centres. And whether or not there are prediction tools we can use to make sure the right patients get to the right place without a significant amount of under and over triage, because both of those things will have knock-on effects to that patient and that establishment. The biggest problem with all forms of triage, and we I've looked at this extensively particularly in relation to a major incident triage over the years, is that the under triage, over triage thing is just two sides of the same coin. So you can either have lots of over triage and not much under triage and vice versa. So the pendulum swings backwards and forwards. And because of the information that you have to try and predict at the scene what's going to happen in terms of the physiological injury and the anatomical injury, notably the anatomical injury, because that's what the ISS is, actually incredibly difficult. So no tool at the beginning of this is ever going to be fantastic. But what Tom's done, Tom's great, he works with us in Manchester at the moment, has looked at a Dutch model of a major incident triage tool and compared that with data from the southwest of England to see if it would make a difference over here. And essentially, it would make a difference if we applied it. The under triage rate would go down to 17%, but the over triage rate would increase to 50%. As a system, you've got some really interesting questions to ask yourself there about what's most important to you in a system. That in itself is also more complex because you can think about where you are in the world. So in Manchester, we tend to try and get most of the major trauma patients into the major trauma centre. But in places like East Anglia, um, so Addenborough, Cambridge, then a lot of the patients are, are managed in the more peripheral units. And that's just a function of geography. Dragging somebody over from the other side of East Anglia who doesn't need to go to the major trauma centre is a real pain. Moving them two miles down the road in Manchester is not a real pain. You're never going to have a perfect score, but this is a really nice piece of work to see. There's a prediction model from another setting. How do we apply it here and what would the effect be? Always worth thinking about how we can use our resources in the most effective and efficacious way. We all know that emergency departments and hospitals generally under strain. But the other major point for this for me is that taking patients away from their home hospital has a huge effect on them and their families. It makes everything more complicated for them. We haven't quite finished with COVID-19, if I'm honest, this month, Simon. There was a post about thromboprophylaxis, again, a journal club post. Venous thromboembolism, we, this is a problem with COVID-19. What has really changed, do you think, about how we're using prophylactic anticoagulation for COVID-19 patients? Well, it's been all over the place, hasn't it, really? We very early on in the pandemic recognised that COVID-19 is a prothrombotic situation. And we've seen many instances of patients with significant PEs, small PEs, you know, many, many platelets holding hands in small vessels in lungs, all sorts of things going on, but definitely a prothrombotic state. And at the beginning, and really, well, still currently, arguably, people are doing lots of different things. So some people are just giving the normal prophylactic anticoagulation, so low molecular heparin doses, which is what we typically use in the UK. Other people are going, um, well, if the D-dime is above this, or if there's um, the oxygen requirements of this, then we're going to go to full anticoagulation, whatever full anticoagulation is, depending on your local regime, or whether you're using DOAX or warfarin or heparin or whatever. So stuff is all over the shop. 
But there are some trials coming through now with some interesting data. So in this paper, it's a collaboration between three major RCTs of ICU patients with COVID-19. So there's the ATT&CK trial, the REMAP-CAP trial, which is a platform adaptive trial looking at ICU patients, um, which is also we've talked about before with tocilizumab because they also tested that, and active 4A trials. It's only ICU patients that they've reported in this particular document, but it is 1,074 patients, mostly from REMAP-CAP, and the outcome measure was organ-free days, depending on whether they gave them prophylactic anticoagulation or whether they gave them full dose. Full dose defined as whatever their particular institution would have done for, for instance, if that patient had a known PE. And interestingly, in terms of organ-free days, They had three, on average, um, three organ-free days if they were on therapeutic doses, treatment doses, and five for prophylactic. It seems highly unlikely that giving higher dose anticoagulation to ICU patients is beneficial. In fact, they've done a nice Bayesian analysis that says that 89% chance that actually it's better to just be on the normal dose. This is for patients who don't already have a PE. I mean, I think if you've got a patient on the ICU and they've got a massive PE that you've demonstrated on a CTPA, that's a different kettle of fish. So this is for patients who we don't yet know whether they've got a big thrombolic event. Now, what's really, really interesting is some of these trials also recruited to ward-based patients. And there is on the interweb, if you look hard enough, a PowerPoint slide from the group that says that on ward-based patients, the results are reversed. But that document is not out there yet. I'm waiting with bated breath to see it because wouldn't it be exciting and interesting and really quite difficult to understand if it wasn't good in ICU, but it was good in the wards. So don't act on that because we don't know yet but it has been alluded to on a PowerPoint slide. So the conclusion there seems to be that prophylaxis for VTE, we just do normal prophylactic doses if on ICU, not therapeutic doses, but there's this hint that maybe, just maybe on ward patients, and we don't know the data, it's all very sketchy, may do better with therapeutic doses. Just be cautious about the ward-based stuff, as as exactly as you've described, but there's just that sort of stuff out there. And again, you know, isn't this a fascinating world? You know, it's just... COVID is really messing with my brain, but isn't it an exciting time to um, to try and get your way through evidence-based medicine? Now, one of the other caps I wear is that I'm very lucky to be part of the medical student teaching down here in Southampton for the year four acute care module. And as a group, we were looking at what we were doing for that group of students. And we realised that in Southampton, we didn't really particularly have a set of Well, for want of a better term, although these words can be really difficult to use, a curriculum or syllabus for them to follow. We we had ideas about what they needed to learn and we gave them lectures and they had clinical time, but we didn't really have an idea about where we should aim our teaching for them. And so this is combined with the GMC introducing what's now in the UK going to be called the Medical Licensing Assessment for UK medical students. And it'll come as a surprise, I think, to some international listeners that until this point in time, there has never been a nationwide exam for medical students to pass to become doctors. They've each been set locally. And if the local institution, as inspected by the GMC, said it was good enough, then it was good enough. But now they're introducing this nationwide test and it'll be two parts, an MCQ, which will be nationally set and sat, and then an OSCE type, Objective Structured Clinical Examination, which will be done locally. But as part of it, the GMC have published a syllabus of sorts. And with this syllabus, they've included the topics that students should know about. This is all based on other documents, such as outcomes for graduates. There's all sorts out there once you start scratching the surface. So what we've done is we've gone through that content map for the Medical Licence Assessment for Acute and Emergency Care. 
and said for each topic what we believe medical students should know when they're coming to graduation time and to prepare for that MLA. We've also added in some FOMED resources for each one, not dissimilar to how we've done with lesson plans. And we've been able to use scores of resources from many different importantly, free websites. So none of this is subscription. So now if you're a medical student, and I hope we're getting more and more medical students listening to St. Emlyn's, you can go on the site, open up a page about a curriculum entry, and then read what it is that we think you probably need to know as a medical student, and then go to see more resources so that you can learn more about that completely for free on those online resources and their podcasts, their blog sites. There's a few YouTube videos. There's all sorts there to suit whatever form of learning you prefer. And also, if you're teaching, you can use those in a flipped classroom model. Hopefully exciting stuff. We want to encourage more and more students that emergency care is where it's at. We'd love to get the resources that we all know as postgraduates out there for them to use. And this is just one way in which we're doing it and hopefully will be of use. I think it's an amazing resource, Ian. This whole MLA thing, I think, is absolutely fascinating. The idea that we'll have a universal exam across the country, that really shakes things up. It means that you would arguably be able to compare the outcomes between different medical schools in a way which we've never done before, but which other countries do. That's really potentially going to put the cat amongst the pigeons if it comes to pass that there are differential achievement rates between the different medical schools, or whether that's published, whether that's revealed, whether it affects which foundation jobs you go to. Honestly, this is fascinating. So this is all coming in over the next couple of years. If you're a medical student now in year four or five, you're probably not going to have to do this from what I read in the guidance. But if you're just starting out or if you're thinking of applying for medical school, this will be a reality. Undoubtedly, this will happen in the future. And hopefully the St. Emlyn's team can help you along the way and also inspire you that emergency and acute care is where it's at. And while we're there, Simon, if we indulge me. Can we mention another project that again we'll blog about this month? It's more to do with the other end of the training spectrum, which is for the fellowship of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Really fortunately, a senior trainee in Southampton, Trudy Pestle, has put together an incredible FRChem revision guide for both the short answer paper or the single best answer paper and the OSCEs. It's phenomenal. 11 chapters over 30 OSCE stations that she talks you through, all sorts of resources that are linked on there. And she's incredibly kindly said that we can put this onto St. Emlyn's as an online free resource. I think she could have published this with any medical publisher, made a few quid. But what she wanted was to make sure that as many people had access to this as possible. That is now live on the site. We'll be blogging about it in the future to tell you a bit more about where it's come from. But you can search. And if you're about to sit the FR Chem exam, it's an unmissable must read. If you're about to sit the MR Chem exam with the new OSCE as part of that, it is unmissable. And maybe even if you're a medical student, it is unmissable. Those OSCE advice and the, the way she's been through it is absolutely superb. I completely agree. And she's what I think is particularly good about it is she's done it in a very generic fashion. So this isn't sort of uh, bringing out um, old questions and saying this is what the old question is. The approach that she's taken is a very generic one that prepares you for whatever type of question in that particular sort of area is devised, which will allow people to, to attempt and hopefully achieve any question that the college puts at them. And the great thing, of course, is because emergency medicine is really all of medicine, whatever field you're going into, and that's why it will hopefully be useful for medical students, there is something there for you. Simon, you'll be doing uh, next week, I think the big news is the CPD conference. 
So CPD Conference, it's live online. It's going to be really good, actually. Single stream. There are a couple of presentations in there which I have seen and are remarkable. And there's a couple of surprises which I think are also pretty remarkable, actually. I really hope you get to the conference. I can't tell you what they are because it's a big secret, but it's going to be good. Simon, it's been a busy old month. We've had lots that we wanted to talk about. We've had lots that's going on right now that's important. Please do search through our old episodes. And if you can, like and subscribe. We always say that because other people seem to say it and therefore it must also be important. We will speak to you next month. Keep doing your emergency medicine. Keep looking after your patients. Keep looking after yourselves and have fun.